Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest is Michael Pond, who is a therapist who's had a struggle with uh, alcoholism. He's written a book. It's called The Couch of Willingness. I've read it. It's pretty good. Uh, It's a nice, fast read. And we're also not just going to talk about uh, the book, but also a lot about the treatment system and uh, things that need to be done with it. We're going to get to that in right one second. First, I'm going to do a little ad for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are free of charge, a lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Michael Pond, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Michael? I'm doing very well, Kenneth. Thank you. Well, thanks for being on the show. Tell us a little bit about your story and your background and some of the things that you describe in your book. Well, uh, I'm a psychotherapist, and I have been for many years, uh, going on 40 years. I'm 60 now. And I had a a thriving practice in uh, a certain area here in the province of B.C. in Canada. And I kind of – I did this thing backwards. I didn't – you know, typically hear about people that, that sober up and, and uh, you know, and then start to, you know, get educated and get credentials or whatever and then become, you know, therapists or counselors. I was uh, a thriving therapist and decided, uh, you know, I'd try drinking again. And, uh, and it wasn't very long before uh, my whole uh, life just began to crumble before my eyes and everybody else's eyes. And uh, I lost my home, beautiful million-dollar home uh, on the lake. I lost my family. I have three sons, all in their mid-late 20s. I lost my practice. I lost my driver's license and ended up on a a Greyhound bus in the fall of 2008 and uh, fell out and staggered into the streets of the downtown east side of Vancouver. And uh, that's where I was. Uh, living that life homeless and uh, penniless at the age of uh, 54. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little yeah. bit about your drinking patterns and when, when you started, and how did you juggle, you know, your life as a therapist with drinking? And, I mean, did it start impacting you immediately? Did it take a long time? How did that go before? Well, my father uh, was an alcoholic. He's, he just passed away three weeks ago. Uh, my grandfather, uh, he uh, was a drinker, hardcore drinker, and uh, was drunk and was staggering down, down the road uh, at the age of 58, and he was struck by a vehicle and was killed. And, you know, I have one brother that uh, could be deemed an alcoholic and one of my two sisters, and I'm the oldest of four. So three of us, uh, you know, could be considered... Uh, alcoholics. So, you know, in adolescence and young adulthood, I, you know, I drank with the best of them, and uh, but I always kind of knew that, you know, I had uh, that disposition or that vulnerability. And then I got married uh, in my mid twenties, started having children, and I got really focused on being a father and a husband, and got focused on my career, and basically rarely drank and if I did I seemed to be able to drink socially and and I went oh okay 
And then when my, my sons got a little bit older, my practice didn't demand so much from me, and it was flourishing on its own. I had three or four associates. Uh, I started drinking again, and uh, but with vigor. <laughs> and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it just progressed and progressed, and, and so it went from kind of just drinking on the weekends and parties and gatherings See, we lived, we lived in, a, in the Okanagan, which is kind of the Napa Valley of, of Canada. It's just, there's wineries and vineyards. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of the, our country. And a lot of my friends and associates were in the industry, and uh, wine drinking and wine tasting was a big part of our life and uh, you know, the culture kind of, the, of that, that particular region of, of British Columbia. And it just started to, to just take over. Uh, Kenneth and you know then I would be uh, I'd be in session all day and uh, you know I, I always felt sorry for the last couple of clients because around three o'clock my brain was on my you know when I'm going to get to my bottle and so mm-hmm. I'd finish uh, one of those days and and uh, immediately go to the liquor store and uh, and then it just kept progressing and kept progressing and then you know near the end I was just phoning in and, and telling my office manager I'm not going to be in for a couple of days. It ended up being a week. And then I, you know, I was running into a lot of difficulties with my marriage and, and my sons. And, you know, near the end, and it was probably around 2005, it was, I was basically asked to leave the home, and, and, and I did. And I'd sleep in the office. I'd sleep in motels in our community. Uh, just wherever I could, and uh, that was it. I, I just could not seem to, to get stopped. I went into a couple of rehabs, uh, all AA-focused, and I tried going to Alcoholics Anonymous, but in our, it was a small community. It's a city of about 40,000. I was well-known in the community, and I'd go into meetings, and, and you know I'd know a lot of my clients in there. It was just really difficult for me. And... Mm-hmm. I, I just never really, and for, right from the beginning, I didn't buy into AA. It just didn't seem to work for me. And I'd try and try, but I'd go to my doctor, and I'd, he'd put me on abuse and say, you know, you've got to go more AA meetings, and you've got to get a sponsor. And, <laughs> and everybody in my life, you know. So here I am with, with all the people that are in the wine industry and, and uh, in a resort town, and uh, I'm basically saying, well, I'm going to AA, and I have to be abstinent for the rest of my life. And... And then, well, well, that's good. That's good. I'm glad. I'm, that's really good news. It's good news to hear. And then they'd be guzzling, you know, in front of me. <laughs> it was a tough place to get sober, let me tell you. Tough place to get sober. And then the practice just, it just started to unravel. And I started losing contracts. And I came in one day after a week-long binge, and I had four resignations on my desk. And all my, uh, uh, my associates just... They were done. They'd had enough. And, and uh, I would come in uh, to try to do work, you know, with a major hangover and detoxing. And one night, I, one morning I came in, I, I'd lost my key to get in the offices. I had to bust the doors down to get into my office. So I'm laying on the couch in my office, and, and my first client arrives, and all the doors are busted down, and I'm passed out on the couch. It was, it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yep, and... Uh, I just couldn't seem to to get and stay sober. 
because I was told I had to get and stay sober. Now, I am sober now, and, and I choose to be abstinent, uh, and I've been, mm-hmm. you know, it'll be five years in August. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, in, but in my practice now, you see, writing this book and for three years and, and reading voraciously and, and studying and researching and writing it over and over and over again, <laughs> funny, funnily, I, 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 I didn't have time to go to any AA meetings. And uh, before you know it, I'm, I'm, you know, a year sober. Mm-hmm. And I believe that, that writing this book and doing everything that I was doing was therapy. I was doing a, yeah. a form of narrative therapy on myself. That's exactly the words that were going through my mind. I was going to ask, do you think that this is a form of narrative therapy, that the writing? Do you think that, that that's what it was? And yes, I think. Yeah, because a lot of people say narrative therapy is very helpful in changing addictive behavior. It, it has been right, quite remarkable, and I agree with you because I, I've researched that as well. And so now I apply it you know, pretty consistently in my practice. And interestingly, I mean, I have a, a full spectrum of, of, a, of a client base here because we're in quite an affluent area of Vancouver, so we have multimillionaires, but we're also very close to our First Nations uh, reservation. We call them reserves here. But, and, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm getting clients with addiction issues from the full spectrum, you know, the socioeconomic spectrum. And mm-hmm. I apply it, the, the narrative therapy piece, and with the First Nations, because a lot of them don't have those writing and literary, you know, formal literary, you know, academic skills, it, it, it's kind of an oral thing that we do. And so they will mm-hmm. tell me their story, but in, in a way that, that's kind of like uh, a legend or, you know what I mean? It's got kind of mm-hmm. rhythm and magic to it. And mm-hmm. not like a drunkologue, you know, you know, that's what I'm trying to say is it's yeah. not, mm-hmm. not that way. And then I get them, you know, okay, that's really great. And, and then I so on for next session, why don't you look at this piece and write some more about that? You know, and as they do it, I can just see them changing. And I have a, a client right now that's 54 years old. He went to uh, uh, a residential school here in, uh, on Vancouver Island, which is notorious because of a, a horrendous uh, pedophile that was a staff at that school. And this man, when, you know, the, the day he arrived there as a five-year-old, he, he was sodomized, and, and that continued for pretty well every day for the, his whole time at that residential school horrendous trauma and he's been coming to see me uh, now for almost three years and he's been sober the whole time he, he could never get more than than a month or two sober you know he could never uh stay out of prison he was in prison his whole life he said i could never make it a year without going back in the joint and mm-hmm. Today, he's been sober, like I said, uh, coming up three years, and he hasn't been back in jail. And uh, he started his own little little business, cleaning gutters, and uh, it's quite remarkable to see this. And, and I don't push abstinence. I don't mm-hmm. push abstinence. So when I started researching and saw, and I read your book and looked at stuff from, uh, from Reed Hester and, and, uh, and Dr. Robert Myers, um, mm-hmm. you know, the moderation management model, and, and, and your book's been a wonderful resource. I just, I have it right on my desk and pull it out all the time. And, 
and use the exercises mm-hmm. and and it, it's just been quite refreshing for me to to see that holy cow you know I went to AA for five years and I just couldn't make this thing work and now I'm making mm-hmm. it work and and using all of these resources like like yours there's other ways here folks and you know quite frankly they're better ways and they're evidence-based mm-hmm. and even people well, with the sobriety you know, with the sobriety sampling, I, I, mm-hmm. I say, you know, how long do you think you could go without a drink? And, oh, I don't know, maybe two days, three days. I said, well, let's try that. Or a week or two mm-hmm. weeks. So, well, let's try that. You know, and we, mm-hmm. and we see where it goes. And I, and I know now in the, in the research that, you know, what is it, a third now will eventually become abstinent when they mm-hmm. start mm-hmm. A, a moderation uh, harm reduction approach. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah. I'm going on and on here, I know, but as you can tell, oh, I've no. got a bit of a passion for this thing. <laughs> well, it is, it is so great to have a choice. I mean, yes. and that is, there's been a lot of research done on that, and I was just reading uh, another paper now that was published like in 2013. It's just a brand new, practically, and saying, you know, how much better people do when you give them a choice. Do you, do you want to quit drinking do you want to cut back to your drinking? Do you want to maybe try a little bit of each and see what works best? And, you know, yeah. people do really well when you give them options. And when you say, oh, you're an alcoholic, you can't drink, first thing you say, oh, yes, I can. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I agree with you totally. And I, I think if somebody would have approached me that, ha- you know, that, that – possess the knowledge and the expertise that, that you and, and other individuals have. And it's mostly I'm seeing this from research from the United States and individuals like yourself and, and uh, Robert Myers and, and that organization in New York. Is it the Center for Motivation and Change, Dr. Jeffrey yes. Foote? Yeah, yes, so yes. it's been really wonderful for me to – and if, if somebody would approach me and or my family 10 years ago and said, hey, we got something here that might work, you don't have to go to AA unless you want to. And why don't we try this? And why don't you try that? And why don't you try this? And here's a men. And I'm going, holy cow, I can choose my own. Uh. You see, and I was always labeled as defiant. I, you know, I went into these, these down-and-out recovery houses here, that rat-infested place here in, in one of our uh, lower ends of town called uh, Surrey. And, and you know, I went in there, and, I, and this is where the couch of willingness comes from. I went in there, and I had to stay, live, you know, that was my house, was this stinking old urine, vomit, sweat, you know, soaked couch that I don't know how many guys would have, would have detoxed on. But anyway, I had to stay on that couch until I surrendered to the program. And the program was their program. And uh, this is where, you know, it's one of the reasons I call the book The Couch of Willingness. And... Uh, I had to buy into that, and so I, I eventually got to this point where, you know what, I either have to get out of here or I'm going to have to just buy in and and follow this thing and get out. And I was out of there, and I was drunk within four days. I relapsed mm-hmm. and uh, was forced to go back in there again because I had no other options. There, there was nowhere to go. We have 200 unlicensed, unregulated uh, recovery homes here in, in Vancouver, Metropolitan Vancouver alone, and it's a big problem. We have a big problem here, 
and this mm-hmm. is where the broken recovery system uh, theme comes from in, you know, as a part of my book. And I know mm-hmm. I don't speak to the, the system, you know, throughout the book, but I tried to embed it, you know, in a literary storytelling kind of way. And, of the, you know, this is what it's like to be homeless. This is what it's like to panhandle. This is what it's like when you, when you stumble and tumble down the socioeconomic ladder. And this is where we end up, particularly in our country. Um, mm-hmm. And everything's AA. Uh, in the recovery house, the treatment was, you know, a ride to the AA meetings. There was no individual mm-hmm. therapy. There was, and when you relapsed, you were booted out. And when you're homeless and penniless, where the heck are you going to go? Yeah, I mean, I could really relate. I could really relate to these stories. I mean, uh, I've made my story public before, uh, but you know, I was homeless for two years. I was uh, living in. Uh, wet housing in uh, Minneapolis, uh, but uh, even before that, I've been through treatment for uh, alcohol alcoholism. I don't even use that word, but that's what they call it. No. I've been through treatment for alcoholism twice. I lived in a halfway house for uh, three months. Uh, fortunately, I was still enrolled in graduate school at the time, and once the summer was over, I could move out and, you know, start collecting my paycheck for teaching assistant again, and... Uh, you know, get out of the halfway house and get into an apartment. I hadn't, you know, lost all my ties at that point. Later I did, and, you know, I was homeless for two years. But I know what you mean. I mean, we were talking about this on an earlier show uh, called Jared's Law uh, just uh, about a month ago, and the, the system is just as bad in the United States. These are totally unregulated, and we're having mm-hmm. huge problems uh, recently with, uh, you know, people in – Sober housing are dying of opiate overdoses. They're dying of heroin overdoses, right and left. Yeah. Because there's no sobriety in these sober houses. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's really, but you know what? I, uh, just listening to you, I was thinking about the, the one recovery house I was in, and the day before I arrived, a young man had, had hanged himself in, in the bathroom in, in that particular house. And, you know, I walked into there in the aftermath of that, and then within a month, you know, I had to cut another guy down myself, and mm-hmm. and we had to try to resuscitate him, but he was gone, you know. Mm-hmm. So within a within a month, you know, two people commit suicide in a recovery house, and mm-hmm. it was because it wasn't regulated, it wasn't licensed, and and. Uh, they were basically able to do whatever they wanted. And, and by that point, I, I was on welfare. You know, I was collecting social assistance, and it was $610 a month, and it was 550 to stay in this particular recovery house. And that's kind of the going rate for these bottom-end recovery houses here. And you're left with $60 for the month to not do much. My son would, would laugh, and he'd say, Dad, you used to spend that for lunch, you know, and you'd leave your <laughs> office, and you'd go for lunch and have a glass, you know, a glass of wine. So I'm hoping my, one of my dreams and one of my, my visions for, for the book and what I do with the rest of my life in this particular world of addictions and mental illness or mental health is to work as hard as I can to change the conversation and, and to change how we think and address uh, substance use and the problems 
you know, that we, it's just unbelievable the amount of money and we have uh, just now they're building another new prison uh, in the interior on an Indian reservation, a First Nations reservation. And I don't know how many bill- millions of dollars that's going to cost. What we need mm-hmm. to do is be putting the money into, into evidence-based treatment, early intervention, working with the families. Goodness me, if, mm-hmm. if my family, like I said, if we like, had applied one of the, you know, a craft model approach you know with my family with my my ex and and my and my sons who knows what would happen well i wouldn't have the story to, i wouldn't have a book <laughs> or it'd be a different book you might have a better book <laughs> you know, <laughs> it might it might be less dramatic but drama yeah. is not always a good thing especially in real life you know? no no dr- drama was was usually meant bad news for me <laughs> yeah, for, for most people, drama is not something to live through. That's something to watch on TV. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's been quite the uh, quite the journey, and uh, you know, part of it too was I was just over a year sober, and and I met my current partner Maureen, who's a co-writer with the book, and you know that whole process of writing this book and, and rewriting and editing and rewriting and and how that you know impacted the development of our relationship and and the learning and and uh, you know the growth that I you know it's unbelievable the you know the personal growth that I had through that and and as well for Maureen to to be a part of that mm-hmm. a big part of it Mm-hmm. I wonder, have you ever thought about this question? And I'm just kind of throwing it out here. Um, because you know, one of the things that keeps us stuck in this recovery system is that there are so many counselors, this is what I find, so many counselors are grounded in the model that I have the answer, the answer is the 12 steps, there is nothing else. And they're totally rigid in their thinking. And how can we, you know, address the attitude of so many people that work in the industry who are just stuck in the in the Stone Age, so to speak? Well, I see a number of factors there that contribute to that. Uh, I just went and did a, a speaking engagement at one of the, you know, big main hospitals here in Vancouver, St. Paul's, and. And the auditorium was full. It must have been at least two, three hundred people in there, and there was doctors and nurses and social workers, and you know the full spectrum of, of that medical world. And it was pretty clear that the, a big part of it is it's free. We can send them to this thing, and it's not going to cost us a damn penny. And mm-hmm. and what I found is is that's kind of that's pretty embedded because it's been around for a long time, ever since Bill W. Uh, was able to influence a lot of the p- political powers in the United States. And, uh, you know, you read that story and, and you can see how that political shift happened. Yet they can remain mm-hmm. in, in this place where they, they, they are uh, immune, basically, from any kind of scrutiny, immune from any uh, evaluation and studies, and yet, still be able mm-hmm. to to hold this this stranglehold on the re, on the recovery world, and so that's part of it. 
And the other part is, is that our general population have been conditioned or brainwashed to believe that this is the program. And it's the only one mm-hmm. that works. And it's helped millions and millions of people. And, and that's just it. And so when people read my book and, and hear me speak or anybody else that is kind of in the know about uh, how ineffective it is, um, they're quite surprised. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I, I get all kinds of responses and, and reviews from people that have read the book that go, I never knew any of this. You know, I didn't know this was going mm-hmm. on. So it, mm-hmm. it, I think it's, the system has kept it that way. You go mm-hmm. to prison. Mm-hmm. I was in prison. I had to serve time for some impaired driving charges, and, and uh, there's meetings in the prison. And mm-hmm. there's meetings everywhere, which is a good thing if you need that social support network. But when it's only 5 to, to 10% effective, or only effective with 5 to 10% of the population, you know, where's the other 90 to 95%? What's happening to them? And, and how do we measure success? Success is measured by, by longevity in terms of sobriety. Mm-hmm. And there's this hierarchy, right, within the system. But to answer your question in terms of professionals that are doing the work, I think that they bought into that either because they don't know any different or there's almost this, this fear or, oh, you can't step on AA, you can't be poking at them, you know. That's a sacred mm-hmm. organization and... and so there's all, you see what I mean? There's all these different kind of factors that interplay with this thing. And uh, mm-hmm. I even remember when I, I wrote my first article, kind of, it wasn't an anti-AA, but I was challenging it a bit in my experience of it. And even Maureen, she said to me, my, you know, my partner, she says, well, you've got to be really careful what you say about AA. And I went, well, why? <laughs> why? I said, if it's not working, why can you not challenge it? And, and it never fails and when I get when I go in and speak, you know, obviously people can pick up on on my uh, feelings, right, about about that program mm-hmm. and how it works and doesn't mm-hmm. work. And it ends up into a big. Well, I've I've learned some ways to diffuse it, but it, you know, initially when I first started doing this, it would, it, the whole thing would become a, this this big war, you know, the AA against the anti AA and and. Uh, it's just really interesting to me how it's so embedded. And so what I've also discovered is, is many medical doctors that do most of the referrals to the treatment centers, and uh, they don't know this. They don't know the new, the new research and the new evidence-based approaches. And I went to see my own specialist uh, here in Vancouver. He's an addictions expert specialist former addict, 20 years sober or more, and I'd come into his office and the first words out of his, I had to see him for two years every two weeks, the first words out of his mouth were, sobriety date? I'd tell him. Uh, How many meetings have you been to? That week? I'd tell him. And then, uh, have you talked to your sponsor? I'd tell him. Have you been going to your home group? And then that was kind of it. And then after that, it was, okay, let's look at these meds, and okay, we'll see you in two weeks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 
And I think this is a very common thing, is that, that success is measured by longevity of sobriety. Now, I'm not going to experiment with that myself personally because I've made my own personal choice. It's like you said. I was empowered when I was felt I had my own choice in this thing. Mm-hmm. I, just choose, I just choose abstinence. But I always well, give my clients, you know, a menu of options. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always say abstinence is a good choice. Well, first of all, it's a good form of harm reduction because it definitely helps you to reduce harm to stay away from that thing that's causing you harm. Uh, Abstinence is a great choice for many things, and I've chosen personally abstinence from a number of addictions. Uh, One of my worst addictions was cigarettes, and I don't try to moderate cigarette smoking. I have a cigar (laughs) now and then, but, uh, you know, cigarettes... I saw a picture of you smoking a cigar with Stanton Peel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, (laughs) cigar's okay because it's a whole different mindset, but to try and moderate yeah. cigarettes for me, that would not be very successful. I said, no, well, if you pay no. me a, if you pay me $1,000 a day to smoke one a day, I think I could do it then. But <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even like, I don't even, wouldn't even enjoy smoking one a day. It wouldn't be any fun. I wouldn't like it at all. Um, so no. abstaining from cigarettes, absolutely. Television was my other real downfall I get sucked in. You know, wouldn't do my homework, didn't, wouldn't read, do my readings for my class, you know, get on the verge of flunking out of classes because I get sucked into TV, watch TV all day long. Yeah. And yeah. worst of all, I was watching shit that I, I hated. I couldn't stand it, but I yeah. couldn't stop. <laughs> so I, not having a TV in the house, that's, that's good for me. With so you're TV, alcohol, you're TV abstinent. TV abstinent. You know, I do, if I go to my friend's house and her son's watching cartoons, I might watch cartoons with him, but uh, I don't count that as a relapse because. <laughs> but it, See, I, I get to watch the odd hockey game here in Canada, and I don't count that because I'm the same. I, I don't rarely watch TV because it's another thing that will consume me. And uh, I even have to be careful, you know, on the computer with the book and the Twittering and the Facebook. And, I mean, holy cow, can you get a – can that dry in and keep you there, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so there's this, like, you know, there's this obsessive-compulsive thing that, that happens with this character, that's for sure. And I always mm-hmm. have to be, you know, aware of and alert to and, you know. <laughs> yeah. Now, with, with alcohol, on the other hand, it's, it's easier for me to drink once a week. I like to get intoxicated when I drink, so I drink plenty. I mean, I drink a fifth of whiskey, 700, 750 milliliters. But, boy, after I drink that, then, uh, you know, that's enough for a while. I'm done, you know. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, that's, uh, mm-hmm. I need to rest up for so, the next six days. Besides, I have a yeah. lot of other things that I want to do. Yeah, I'm done with it, Yeah. Yeah, but you but you're able to to do that and and manage it and um, that, that's a question. You're you you are obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, for about uh, twelve years now, I've been on this pattern, so it's pretty it's pretty stable. Uh, once in a while, yeah. I do uh, drink two days a week, but you know, then I say, oh boy, that was too much. I don't want to do that again for a while. So back to yeah. one day a week, yeah, and that's where I like to stay because otherwise it's too much. And, you yeah, know, can I ask you a question then? How does how does your family feel about that? Like, 
I don't know if you have, I don't know your story, but, uh, you know, if you have your own children or parents or other relatives that knew you back when when alcohol was, was the, the terrible demon that almost took you down and killed you. Well, they... you know, I'm, I'm single, so, and yeah. I'm not very close to my, uh, my parents. Um, well, my parents... Uh, were religious teetotalers. All four grandparents were religious teetotalers. Um, they uh, believe in creationism. They're opposed to evolution. It's uh, all kinds of stuff, you know. And I became so a Darwinist, a yeah. communist. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, it, uh, it, so it doesn't impact you so much in terms of your, your family system and your community? In my whole community, I mean, my church... Uh, my friends uh, and uh, my colleagues, uh, you know, everybody knows my whole history. I've told them everything. They know my whole pattern. They know my solution. And everybody's like, yeah, that's your solution. And they see me. You know, I, mm-hmm. I worked for, I mean, I was employed by my church for uh, about six years. So they knew that, you know, I was mm-hmm. totally functional. And it wasn't, you know, this guy never misses work. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not one of those, everybody knows yeah. that the solution works. So I have a community yeah. that accepts me. And uh, that's one thing I was going to say before, because, you know, social support can be very important. But for me, AA was just, it, there was no social support there because the belief system was just too bizarre for me. I just couldn't. Yeah. Time, I tried several months going to those meetings, I was abstaining when I started. By the time I finished, I was drinking a liter of whiskey every day. And I had to actually check into detox because I was at that point where I could, you know, have died of withdrawal. Um, but I found at my church, which is, the, it, it's Episcopalian, so it's Anglican. Um, mm-hmm. I found my church was much less religious than AA, so I was much more accepted there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say, talk about evangelism and proselytizing. I mean, goodness me, the AA is at the top. It, it's at the pinnacle of that. And, you know, I hear you, and, and, and I really do, really do, you know, agree with you, Kenneth, because I, I saw so many people come in, come and go and come and go, and then, and then you just look around and, goodness me, I haven't been here for a year, and there's a lot of different faces, but I see like four or five that seem to be here all the time. And where's the other, you know, 40 or 50? What happened to those? Those faces have all changed. And you go back a year again and another year later, and, oh, my goodness, there's that same four and five old guys and one, that one older lady. And, oh, all the other faces are completely changed. And, and that's mm-hmm. when I was starting to go, what is going on here? You know, mm-hmm. but for some reason you figured out, you know, sounds like, you know, quite a few years ago that this thing doesn't work for me, and so i got to find another way. Yeah, it didn't take long. It was a few months, and I was so, as I said, I was out of treatment. I said to myself, well, I need to do something at night, you know, because I need mm-hmm. to be occupied doing something when the, until the liquor store closes. So let's yeah. find an activity. Let's go to these meetings. They'll be innocuous. I'll just go there, hang out. By the time the meeting's over, the liquor store is closed. I can go home and go to sleep. Don't have to worry about it. Um, but, boy, you know, after a few months, just this same message 
Alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful, and you mm-hmm. must admit you are powerless. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't believe I don't believe in any god that comes down and cures diseases. So pretty much, with me being powerless and alcohol being powerful, there was nothing to do but drink it. So even though you have you know a, a Judeo-Christian belief system, uh, that model doesn't stick for you doesn't doesn't work for you you don't buy it you don't believe in it so well, it wasn't even believe, so much about that i don't believe in the divine intervention and at that point in time um well i called myself a pantheist i still call myself a pantheist i'm very much i'm very close to atheistic in many ways so i don't believe in the divine intervention um I'm not very good uh, Judeo-Christian in terms of theology. Um, I think churches are really valuable social centers, and that's what happened. I mean, I, when I started to work for my church, uh, like seven years ago, eight years ago, whatever it was, um, you know, I told the priest there, because the, the, it was a friend that he introduced me, I said, you know, I don't, I'm not a Christian, and I don't believe all this stuff. And he says, I'm not hiring you to be a Christian and believe all this stuff. I'm hiring you to sweep the floor and mop the floor and keep the hot <laughs> place clean. And, uh, okay. That's I love cool. it. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So, but, you know, I started going to, I started from the first week, you know, to go to the service and check it out, see what's going on. I got good friends with all the people there. Um, we have a lot of uh, ladies from the West Indies there, and they like to uh, put on a nice feast, uh, <laughs> you know, every month. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part, that's part of my job as the sexton, actually, is to help them get the food ready, help get it out served and all that. So, and, you know, they're always, you know, have some more fried chicken, have some more, you know, and nobody's ever... Um, do you believe in God? What do you think of, uh, you know, what's your theology? What's your belief about the Christianity? No, there's like, here, have, some, have something to eat. It's like, you know, yeah. they're actually oh, yeah. acting, they're acting like Christians in sharing, and they're not being theological. And it's like, yeah, I fell in love with all my, uh, with my whole congregation here. So I joined mm-hmm. the church that became a member. Uh, I don't worry very much about theology. It's not, it's not, uh, an important point to me. It's, uh, no, it sounds like it's about yeah. It sounds like it's, yeah. it's about warm, kind relationships, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is the you know one of the problems with with our current system in terms of uh, addiction, treating addictions is you know I know it's almost cliche now, but it, it's just rampant. You know the shame and the stigma and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really troublesome. And when you, I remember going into, I don't know how many AA meetings, you know, and then at first I was this chronic relapser and I, I would be filled with guilt and remorse and self-recrimination and you crawl back into that meeting with your tail between your legs and, you know, and the words they use is, oh, he's back and isn't that great? But it was the gossip and the, and the talking between the meetings, you know. The smoke before the meeting and going out for coffee after the meeting was the time to to gossip and and uh, talk about the you know the knucklehead that that got drunk again and uh, <laughs> yeah how's that going to help anybody 
They may get you sober, yeah, you know, yeah, for a significant yeah. period of time, but you're going to be a miser- miserable SOB, I would think. I met a lot of a lot of uh, fellows in AA, great guys, but there was also some guys that, holy cow, uh, talk about angry and and vindictive, and but they've been sober for 27 years. Well, yeah, I don't yeah. know, maybe I'd rather be drunk <laughs> than to be, you know, living that way in the world. And uh, it's that cultish piece that uh, that gets me. And, and anyway, there's lots of things. And I'm not here to damn AA at all. That's not what this is about. It works for, a, you know, a lot of people. And I think there's very well-meaning people in, in that organization. And I've been to meetings all over the place. And But we need to uh, change the system completely, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that this book will, will help people, you know, through the story, help people to kind of open their eyes and look at this thing and why is it not working. I get people now that, that say, you know, I, when I go, you know, downtown into the, the Skid Row district here, it's the downtown east side, and, and mm-hmm. they say, you know, I, I see those people differently now, you know. Mm-hmm. And I see the, a human being there and that probably has a story and... You know, and and if the book does even that, I feel I feel good about it. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, but it's been difficult for my family. It, it's been difficult for my sons. You know, this process. Their dad's sober, but I think they really, you know, they they have a lot of mixed feelings about this whole going public thing with it. You know, and opening up about the family and and you know, I think because they're they. You know, because of the history, they bought into that that shame model. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, yeah, it really shame is. Shame doesn't help. Yeah. No. No, didn't help me. The shame doesn't and, help uh, at all. I'm... You know, it's okay to have a bit of guilt about it because you know, Brene Brown talks about that how. You know, guilt and shame are different. Shame is about the person. Mm-hmm. You're a shameful person. And guilt is more about, well, the behavior that you did there wasn't very good. And, well, let's, let's oh, okay, yeah, I feel bad about that. Okay, so what are we going to do to change that behavior? Or shame is, you know, at a deeper core level. And you know what? We already feel that. That comes with the territory as a, as a you know, as a drunk. Mm-hmm. See, and I don't even like using that word. I'm, I'm, I become like you. I don't like to use alcoholic or alcoholism or drunk or. And so when people come into my office now, I, I just say, you know, I don't use those words anymore. And they'll say, well, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And I go, well, I don't know because you know I don't really use that as a. You know, I don't use any labels anymore, really. And I come from a background that medical psychiatric background. That's all we did. Yeah. Yeah. And. I don't find it helpful at all. I mean, all you can say is, you know, uh, actually we were talking about this in class today. It, it was in reference to schizophrenia instead of uh, substance abuse. But it was the same thing of uh, when you intervene with people, uh, it's not you know, getting them to an accept, accept the label that they're schizophrenic. You uh, start with saying, you know, are you having some life problems? And how can you address these problems and make your life better? And, you know, that's the same thing when people walk in with 
problems with alcohol. You know, is alcohol causing you some problems? Well, can you, what kind of changes can you make with your drinking so that alcohol causes fewer problems or maybe you can get rid of the problems entirely? What sort of changes do you want to make? you want some tools to try control drinking? Do you want to do a period of abstinence, variety sampling, as you said? Uh, you know, and you say that, you know, nobody needs to be called an alcoholic to change their drinking behavior. No. Well, for me, I think that was a big part that kept me where I was and, and, you know, bottoming out to the degree that I did was I was still operating from this, this, this core belief that, you know, I'm not going to be a drunk like my dad. I'm not going to be, you know, uh, an alcoholic drinking shaving lotion and, and vanilla extract like my grandfather. So it was all driven by that, that fear that I'd become that. And, and I think the irony is, is that fear of becoming that is what was driving me to become that. Mm-hmm. And, and and so again, when I when I work with people that come and see me, and I, what's happened is is you know I wasn't really an addictions therapist or counselor. I I did mm-hmm. I had a very generalist practice and did many different things. And but now because of the book and you know it's just evolved that that's you know the bulk of the referrals that I'm getting now here in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And but I'm. I'm really, you know, using a lot of uh, a lot of these harm reduction techniques that you, you know, offer in your book, and and uh, I seem to be ha- we we seem to be having some success, and people like that feeling of coming in and going, you know, hey, you know, I only drank once this week, and and it was, you know, everything was okay, or I got really loaded, and and I said, well, you know, let's look at it, and what can we do to change that? What do you want to do to change that? What do you think you mm-hmm. can do to change that? And always offering mm-hmm. options. And like you said, always giving choice. I, that step one was I'm powerless, you know, and my life's become unmanageable. And I need to have a higher power take care of everything in terms of this behavior. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was doing that was very disempowering. And it never mm-hmm. did. It, it never did. You know, it always rubbed wrong for me, or it just didn't fit for me. And now I know why. Yeah, it's uh, perfectionistic, you know. It's a nice thing about harm reduction, is that because it's a low threshold intervention, um, people can be successful, you know, every week. You know, you can. That's what I. That's one of the things is I'm always having to remind people in my group about because I will get people that will say like they say but yesterday I went out and I got plastered and I'm so unhappy with myself and I'm so miserable I'm a total failure and I say wait a minute you drank one day out of the last seven how are you total failure the other six days you didn't drink at all you had six days of success and one day that you screwed up so don't and what was it like before you came here? Oh, you were drinking uh-huh. every seven days a week. <laughs> Don't discount yeah. the success. You had a lot of success. You've made you've made progress. You're you've had some major success here. And and you know, that twelve step model is, is the antithesis of that. It's more it's always focused on you failed or you're flawed. I mean, it's just filled with, you know, 
about failings and flaws and 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 you know wrongness and sin and doesn't work for me and I don't think it works for a lot of people and I like mm-hmm. to focus on on people's strengths and and have a more kind of opportunistic and and let's shift our view on this let's shift our perspective let's look at it from the other side it's like you said you know, if that person would have gone to the AA meeting and, you know, they'd been sober a week and then, you know, had a lapse or a relapse and went to the meeting next day, you know, the first thing that they ask is, is anybody coming back? Which means you failed. Mm-hmm. Has anybody failed? Mm-hmm. Anybody in here <laughs> failed? You know, and then, of course, if I failed, I'm a failure and I'm flawed and I have to know, now go and, and be repentant and... Uh, that doesn't sound like a very optimistic, positive approach. Yeah, I mean, I, I just remember I wasn't at that many meetings, but I see people that would come in and say, "Well, I was sober for twenty years, and I relapsed yesterday. I lost everything. I'm back to day zero. And they were just devastated. Mm-hmm. You know what? Ken, I was at a meeting here when I was back going to meetings probably about four or five years ago in, in, in Vancouver here. And I was at this, I just happened to go into this meeting. I'd never been to it before. And it was a, a cake meeting. And this guy who was in his seventies, they were giving him his second 20 year cake. And the whole focus of that birthday celebration was did you know he was 20 years sober and then he relapsed and he had to start all over again and here we are 20 years later focusing on that. So in a period of 40 years, he had one, quotes fail, but that was the focus of the meeting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that just is ludicrous to me. Mm-hmm. But know, there's one other and, aspect that, that I just have to address and uh you know, it's the one that really, one thing that really bothers me is because there's a slogan that AA has that says, take what you like and leave the rest, and that's a complete and total lie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you walk in there, and the first thing is, like, oh, you have to do the first step, and then they're powerless. And, yeah. Wait a minute, you said I could take what I like and leave the rest. I don't like that. Saying I'm powerless is going to be very bad for me. Oh, but if you don't do the first step, you're going to die. Well, you can die if you want to. It's just a suggestion, like suggesting you put on a parachute before you jump out of a plane. You can you can leave the first step and die if you want to, but if you want to live, you'll you'll do it because otherwise you'll die. It's like, how did these yeah. suggestions become death threats? Yeah, yeah. They, 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 there's a tendency to kind of speak out of both sides of your mouth, right? The incongruencies mm-hmm. and the inconsistencies and the conflicting slogans and principles that it was it was crazy making for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 even it, you know, right in, in the big book it says that you know basically you know nobody will fail at this thing. Nobody, you know, rarely has anyone ever failed, but there are some that fail because they're not being rigorously honest or they have a mental illness. Mm-hmm. So because I have a el- mental illness, it, it, it's about honesty or dishonesty. Mm-hmm. I thought it was mm-hmm. about being mentally ill. 
so you can't fail at this thing because you're mentally ill and because you're mentally ill you can't be honest you can't be rigorously honest Mm -hmm. but the public believes the public believes this whole thing oh oh you can take what you like and leave the rest they won't force you to do anything every member of the general public i've known that's had no direct experience of aa believes oh, but they're so kind and they're so nice and they don't force you to do anything. And it's like, yes, they do. And it's, oh, you're just an alcoholic in denial. That's why you don't want to go. Of course, they're wonderful and you're crap. And that's what the general public says. Well, there's this real dynamic of us and them, right? And and I think the general public that's, that's not, doesn't have you know, the knowledge that, that you and I have uh, mm-hmm. had just buys it. They've, they've bought into it until they hear, you know, the truth or, or you know, the other side of it. And I like how, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Lance Doty's, he talks about, you know, we only get the stories of, of, the, of the successes. Mm-hmm. You know, we only get the stories of the successes and everybody's up you know, doing these speaking about how wonderful that was. and But what about the 90% that weren't? Where, where are those stories? You know, yeah, so I'm hoping, yeah. that, I'm hoping that, you know, The Couch of Willingness, my book, is going, well, here's a story where that didn't work for this guy. And, uh, but he found a way. It's interesting to me, you know, today... You can criticize the Catholic Church. You can talk about pedophile priests and sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Or you can criticize any church. Uh, The minute you say a word against AA, oh, they are only kind and benevolent, and you will be, you know, you will be smashed if you say, well, yeah, but AA is full of sexual predators, which um, it is. Yeah. It's it's where you know a, a, my early years of my career was uh, I I spent 12 years working exclusively with uh, with sexual offenders, adolescent and adult, and actually ran a, a program, a community-based program for for uh, three years. And I know where these guys go. I know where they like to hang out, and they like to hang out in mm-hmm. churches, and they like to hang out at AA. Anywhere that they mm-hmm. can go and, and believe that they can be basically be included at whatever level, and there's no rules. Unless you've got somebody running around, uh, uh, an AA kind of veteran, you know, checking things out. I, I remember one guy in some meetings in my hometown in Penticton, he called himself the AA Nazi. And he'd taken it mm-hmm. on as his role to be the guy that's, you know, if I think this guy's creeping out the girls in the meeting here which happens all the time, then, you know, I'm going to deal with him and teach him a little mm-hmm. lesson here. You know, so it's this, mm-hmm. it's unregulated. That's the irony of this. It's, yeah, it's not it, accountable it's, or answerable to anything or anybody. It's interesting. Um, AA in, uh, I believe, Great Britain, in Australia, in several places, they have officially adopted sexual harassment policies, but in the United States, they have uh, absolutely refused 
Um, if you ever encounter my friend Monica Richardson, who does uh, another blog talk radio show uh, mm-hmm. uh, called Safe Recovery, she might interview you if she hears you on my program. Um, <laughs> oh, we, should, we, we trade guests back and forth a lot. So, um, yeah, what's but, her name, you know, Monica? Monica Richardson, yes. And the Monica show is Richardson. Safe Recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she's, she was fighting for a long time to get AA to adopt a sexual harassment policy to protect the women there. And, you know, and the general service officers, well, no, we don't have to do this, and we're not going to, and we don't want to, and absolutely not. So yeah. that's a battle that she can talk about. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. I I witnessed it because in one of the recovery houses, I, I was, for months, I was, you know, basically had to attend three meetings a day. I was going to three AA meetings a day, sometimes four, and I couldn't stand it. It was like torture. That's probably what kept me sober. <laughs> I was being tortured. But, you know, it's it's this anonymity piece, too, that, that contributes to that, I believe. I think the anonymity thing is good in certain respects, but in terms of a support group and and something that's that's being touted as, as treatment or therapy, I mean, for a sexual predator, hey, give me anonymity. That's exactly the place for me. You know, that's where I'm going. And there's some, you know, some young, you know, attractive men or women. And uh, it's, not, it's not a safe place. I really believe that. I, I saw too many things. I saw too many girls, young girls being 13-stepped. They're vulnerable and, uh, and you know, at a place that, the, that well, just that. I mean, they're extremely vulnerable and, and, and can be perfect, you know, victims for a predator. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it, it, there has to be, I believe, anything that totes itself as recovery or treatment or therapy uh, and has some level of, of organization in terms of that's its mandate or its policy or its mission needs to be somehow accountable and regulated. Mm-hmm. And, and well, implement, our group implement policies and, and procedures that are like this, like you're referring to with the sexual harassment piece. Well, our group does have uh, pretty strict policies in place that uh, we put through the board, but it looks like we are running out of time. So I want to thank but you already? for being our guest this evening. Yes, it's only been an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Kenneth, it's been a pleasure. It really has. It's been great talking to you. So I want to yeah. thank you for being our guest, and everyone, we will see you all. But in two weeks, we don't have anything next week, so we'll see you in two weeks. Everyone, good night. All right, thank you. Thank you very much. Good night.